Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. I'm looking forward. I'm excited for tonight to hear the message, the word from Brother David Johnson tonight. Uh, the John Johnson family is, um, they hail from the great state of Oregon. And uh, Sister Johnson's father is the district superintendent there in the state of Oregon uh, for the UPCI. And Brother Johnson's grandfather, I believe, was district superintendent there for 16 years. Um, currently, he is, Brother David Johnson is the academic dean of Urshan Graduate School of Theology. And he's currently earning his PhD from Hebrew Union College right here in Cincinnati. And we're just honored and, and thankful to have them here at Tree of Life Church while he is earning that degree. And um, his family, they're, they're, they've been here for over a year now. And just the blessings of the church. And I have to be honest, there's probably been a time or two preaching that I've thought, I better have my scripture right because... He might check me on something here if I've, if I've misinterpreted something here. But they're a blessing to the church and, and this congregation. And uh, I believe Pastor Duvall is handing out some information that you might um, want to reference uh, tonight. And uh, we just want to give the Lord another hand clap for what he's doing. And Brother Johnson, come take your liberty, my friend. God bless Thank you, Pastor Tierney. Why don't you turn to someone near you and just shout out, it's good to be in church on a Wednesday evening. Amen. It's good to be here. Um, and just want to say thank you to Pastor Urshan and all of the staff here for inviting me to speak here this evening. Um, I consider it an honor to stand in this pulpit. I so appreciate and have appreciated during the time we've been here. Of course, a lot of the time it's been online. So I haven't had a chance to meet everyone yet by any stretch of the imagination. But in the time we have been here, I've so appreciated Pastor Urshan and his preaching and all of the ministers here who have preached. It's just good to walk into the presence of the Lord. And thank you to the musicians and, and those who led the worship just a few moments ago. What a beautiful presence of the Lord. It's just so great to be a part of God's family. Amen. It's good to be here. Let's read a verse quickly from uh, Jonah, just a couple verses. I'm going to be focusing on the book of Jonah tonight. Um, I heard I was supposed to say something from the Bible. Is that, is that true? Just wasn't sure, but... So I picked something from Scripture, um, but just want to be focusing on the book of Jonah. So if you want to follow along in your Bibles, um, you can do that. I'll just read a couple verses here at the beginning. And then I'm also, as Pastor Tierney mentioned, there's a handout going around. If you want it, maybe shout out at whoever's passing them out, or maybe you've already received it, and you can follow that um, as well. But we'll just start at the beginning of the book. Uh, Jonah chapter 1. Uh, Verse 1. So if you're still looking for that, let me just say, I love and appreciate my wife so much. She's right back here. Raise your hand, Verdana. And she's corralling our two youngest right now. Our two oldest girls are downstairs in Bible quizzing on Wednesday nights. And normally my wife is helping, but she's here to hear me teach tonight. So thanks for coming. 
And uh, anyway, Jonah chapter 1, verse 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. And then if you just turn over to chapter 3, verse 1, it says, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. You ever had to had God have to speak to you twice? This is going to sound familiar, what he says to Jonah the second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. God had to tell Jonah essentially the same thing twice. I hope my ears are open to what God has to say. Let's just pray so you, and, and ask God to bless his word so that then you can be seated. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for this opportunity to be in this house tonight, to feel your presence, to, to have worshiped you this evening in song, to have lifted our hearts up to you, to already have felt your presence. God, I pray that you would speak to us tonight through your word as we open this book of Jonah, God, and, and, and examine the things here. God, I pray that it would speak to each heart, that each one of us would hear your voice and respond. We pray these things in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Well, the book of Jonah is an interesting book. It's small. If you're not paying attention as you flip through the Old Testament, you'll probably miss it because it's very small. It's just four chapters, and those chapters aren't very long. Um, but it has something important for us as Christians, as children of God, to understand. It has many important truths. It's not just a children's story. It works well for a children's story. And sometimes we think of the story in a kind of caricature and don't really catch the, the theological depth that is here. And so I want to take some time this evening and just, of course, be mindful of your time as well, but just look at it in a little more detail and hopefully draw some insights and hopefully God will speak to our hearts as we look at it together. Um, it's a really fascinating book, and it, it probably... Um, is the, the, the prophet Jonah can probably be dated to sometime during the reign of Jeroboam II. So probably sometime between before or, or near 788 B.C. to 748 B.C. And there's only one other mention of Jonah in the Bible. It's in 2 Kings 14.25, which mentions Jonah the son of Amittai. And it appears to be the same Jonah. There's no reason to think it wouldn't be um, that I can think of. But other than that, we don't really know a whole lot about this person, this prophet, other than what we read right here in the book of Jonah. But there's a lot packed in here. Um, as I mentioned earlier, there are two times when God comes to Jonah and tells him to go to the city of Nineveh and preach. And I want to talk to you tonight about uh, pagan preachers and an unprofitable prophet. And hopefully as we go through this, that will make a little bit more sense. Um, so I've already read the, the story begins with the word of the Lord coming to Jonah, the son of Amittai, and telling him to go and prophesy against Nineveh because of their wickedness. And I'm assuming that most of us are familiar with the story. Um, Jonah refused to go. He refused to comply. And this is where the drama starts. Instead of going to Nineveh and preaching to them as the Lord had commanded them, as commanded him, Jonah goes down to the seaport of Joppa and boards a ship 
that is bound for Tarshish, which is in the opposite direction. It's a western seaport, way in the opposite direction away from Nineveh. He's trying to get as far away from obeying God's command as he can. Now, he doesn't want to go and preach to these people, and I'm not sure why. I'm not sure all of the reasons why. Some of them come out as we go through the story. Not sure why Jonah is so resistant to God's call. But I do know that in the New Testament, there was another character of the New Testament, Peter, who also spent some time in Joppa. And he also struggled in that city with the call to carry God's message to other people, non-Jews. So I think that's an interesting parallel. But anyway, as Jonah is running away from the call of God, he's, in, he's on a ship and he's en route to Tarshish. A violent storm comes up and threatens to overthrow the ship. It threatens to completely break up and destroy the ship. And so the sailors who have experience grow desperate and they start throwing the cargo overboard. I don't know what it was. I don't know if it was grain or maybe wine. Maybe it was a shipment of olive oil that was bound to be sold in a port, the port of Tarshish. I don't know. Um, but whatever it was, they lost interest in their job. They lost interest in their cargo and they begin calling out to their gods. I don't know if they called out to their family god, to their local god, there were hundreds of gods in the ancient Near East that they could have been calling out to. And they just started calling out for assistance. They said, this storm is something unlike what we have seen before. Um, we're very, very worried. We're very, very concerned about our safety. And somehow we've got to make contact with some god that can hopefully get in contact with a more powerful god who can actually do something about this storm. And so they just really began to panic. And... They're stumbling around, trying to figure out a way out of their dilemma. They had no idea where to find help in their time of trouble. They make me think of the people Jesus mentioned and called the blind leading the blind. I'm thankful tonight that we know who our God is, that we know his name, and that we know that when we call on him in faith, he will respond to us. But they were very, very worried. They were panicked. They were confused. And so when the storm di didn't go away, it wasn't working, they decided to uh, cast lots. And the lot fell to Jonah. Now, I don't know, um, I don't know what they thought was going to happen, but they cast lots, and probably this is just so everybody threw something into the pot. Maybe it was a hat. Maybe it was a container that was recognizable. So maybe it's something they had from their family or something their father had given them or some, some stone with their name on it. Who knows? They threw, threw everything into the pot, and they would shake the container around, and then whichever one came out first, that would be the one who would have to share. You ever had sharing time? I remember at my family reunions growing up, we used to have sharing time. And my mom had 11 other siblings in her family. It was a blended family. It was very large. I had more cousins than I could keep track of. And so I was always terrified of having to share at sharing time. But essentially, everyone has skeletons in their closets. And in the ancient Near East, they weren't sure how to tell exactly why gods were angry with them. They just knew there must be some gods that were very angry. Otherwise, the storm wouldn't be here. And so they wanted someone to go first to share their skeletons in their closet what have you done wrong, wrong that could have caused this? And so as it happens, Jonah's lot falls, and he has to go, go first. And of course, uh, he had a lot to share. 
And he said, I know why that the, the gods are angry, uh, specifically one god in particular. His name is Jehovah or Yahweh. And uh, he's angry with me because I'm not doing what he told me to do. Notice how the pagan sailors have to pull this information out of Jonah. He's reluctant to speak. He's reluctant to share what he knows about God. They have to pull everything out of him. When we're not where we're supposed to be with God, we're not ready to share his message with those around us. And so his own disobedience had closed his mouth, and he wasn't really willing to share what he knew, even when it could have helped them tremendously. And so he told them, of course, the only way to quiet the storm was to throw him overboard. You just have to punish me and throw me into the sea, and then you'll be okay. The God uh, that I serve, Yahweh, will not be angry with me any longer, and the storm will go away. And so they're reluctant to do this. They have human feeling. The sailors, even though they're, they're, they're non-Israelites, they have human feeling. They are concerned about this man's life. And they don't want to throw him overboard, so they resist. And they try to do everything possible to save his life. But in the end, they went ahead and threw him into the sea. Notice that the sailors are more concerned over Jonah's life, someone they really, that's really a stranger to them, than Jonah was concerned over the potential destruction of an entire city. And as we get into the story, you'll see that, but... If you know the end of the story already, you can see that now. But there's a fascinating progression in the story of Jonah, and this is really what the handout that I passed out shows. Uh, there's, a, there's a fascinating spatial progression as you start reading the story of Jonah. If you just go to chapter 1, verse 1, and start reading, you notice that Jonah, when he rebels against God, he begins this figurative and literal descent. He goes down, down, down. And that's what the stair steps on the handout that go down are meant to show. But Jonah goes down to Joppa to purchase passage to Tarshish. He then goes down into the ship. And during the storm, we read again that Jonah had gone down into the ship's hold. And then it says he laid down to sleep in verse 5. And then Jonah is cast into the sea and goes down into the sea even lower than he ever thought possible and ends up in the midst of a big or a great fish. Really a, a downward spiral. And this progressive downward motion in the story is in stark con contrast to the Lord's command. What is the first word? And it might be difficult depending on which translation you're reading to see, but the first word that God says to Jonah is, get up. He says, arise and go to Nineveh. But instead, he does the exact opposite. He goes down to Joppa. And he just goes down, down, down. And God is saying, go up. And notice that within the story, the sailors and the people of Nineveh are more sensitive to God's voice than Jonah is. Because what does the ship captain say to Jonah when he goes to wake him up? He's, the first word he says is the same word that God spoke to Jonah in verse 2. He says, arise. Why are you sleeping? Get up. Even the pagan ship captain preaches God's word to the reluctant prophet. I hope God doesn't have to cast about as hard as he did in this story 
to find some way to get through to me. And so what follows is probably the most, probably arguably one of the strangest scenarios in the entire Bible. There, there are some strange things in the Bible, but this ranks up there with them. The Lord appoints this large fish to swallow Jonah. And the prophet spends three days and nights inside this creature. And after that time, the Lord speaks to the fish. And, of course, the fish responds to God's voice and goes up immediately at God's command and spits Jonah out onto the dry land. Now, I don't know what this great fish was. The word is just the, tr just the standard word for a fish. It's just, just not clear what it is. Um, it could be a fish, it could be a mammal species, there's really no way to know. I, I don't think it's the right approach to try to identify which species it is, though, because it clearly says that God ordered the fish to go and to do what he did. And so it's a miracle. And so it's, it does no good to say, well, which fish has the size of a stomach or belly that could accommodate a human figure any more than trying to find a donkey that can speak because the Bible mentions that one spoke. The point is, the point is it was a miracle. So either you believe it or you don't, but, but you don't answer the question with science. But whatever it is, here's what the Bible says. A great fish did this. But there's a larger point to the story. And of course, it's great to tell this story to children, but there's a larger point to the story. As I've mentioned, almost every character in this book is more obedient than the prophet. You would think a prophet is the one who's supposed to have a connection point with God and is supposed to be obedient, if anyone is. But this is just a strange story because this prophet doesn't behave like a prophet should. God tells the fish to do, do a task, and it obeys. He tells a shady plant later in the story to grow, and it grows. He tells a worm to destroy the plant, and it does it. He tells the scorching east wind to come and blow, and it does it. Plants and animals and pagan she sheep ca ship captains, excuse me, everyone obeys God in this story. Even animals, even the nature obeys God, but the prophet stubbornly refuses to obey the voice of God. And when I heard this story when I was a kid, I, I was told that Jonah repented in the belly of the fish. But I think it's important to look at the details when you read Scripture. And if you read it carefully, I really don't see a repentance here. I really don't see any change of heart and mind when I read the prayer that Jonah offers in the belly of this fish. The prayer is appropriate to the situation Jonah's in. It talks about how Jehovah is sovereign over the whole universe. It recognizes that among the gods, only Jehovah, only Yahweh can deliver from difficulty. And so he's celebrating God's ability to get him out of his trouble. Um, it, it doesn't at any time apologize for disobedience. He doesn't at any time give any assurance that he will obey in the future. Essentially, if you read it carefully, it appears to me Jonah is asking God to get him out of the mess he's in without owning any responsibility for getting himself there in the first place. In 2.4, it's a key uh, verse, uh, chapter 2, uh, verse 4, Jonah says, I am cast out of your sight. Now, I mentioned earlier I have four kids. If you ever, something goes wrong in your household, 
like the, you know, the classic, a lamp gets broken, because it's just an easy example, right? It fell. It broke. No mention of who was the agent. And that's exactly what Jonah says here. He says, I am driven away from your sight, Lord. He doesn't say who got him there. He doesn't, he doesn't blame God for doing it, but he, he just says it happened. I'm, I'm, I'm cast out of your sight. There's no admission of guilt, and it's consistent with his attitude throughout the book. He never admits his own wrongdoing or affirms that Yahweh was right in the way he dealt with Nineveh. Never, even to the end of the book. It never happens. So he expects God to deliver him from his dilemma, but then he ends up begrudging the people of Nineveh their own deliverance. Oh, I need God to work on my behalf. Uh, and so, as I said earlier, and this is on the handout, if you're following the handout at all, this is the second vertical line that goes down. There's two key points in the story when God speaks to uh, Jonah and tells him basically the same thing. And here it is, the same message again in chapter 3. Arise and go. Get up and go to Nineveh. So he's been unceremoniously deposited on the dry land. And he hears God's call again. And he says, okay, I guess I'll head in that direction. But it's half-heartedly. I don't know if Jonah, if the fish uh, spit him out near Joppa, where he started, or not. The Bible doesn't say. But I do know it had to be somewhere on the coast. And so roughly, he was about 550 miles away from Nineveh when he got off the subway, or the fish. And so then, you know, caravans in the ancient world, remember, he's not driving a Porsche. Caravans in the ancient world could maybe go 20 to 25 miles a day. Probably had to travel with a caravan. I don't know if one was leaving that moment. So it's, po it's possible he could have made the journey in three to four weeks. So he does keep on track. And this is really the high point of Jonah's obedience throughout the story, is that he actually makes it all the way across land to Nineveh. But when he gets there, the story shows again that he wasn't really wholeheartedly following God. So he goes and delivers a message to, uh, to the king of Nineveh, or to the people of Nineveh. And it's very interesting that when he delivers the message to the Ninevites, he only gives them, in the Hebrew it's only five words, in English it might be a few more depending on which version you're looking at, but he essentially says, 40 more days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. His only interest is the judgment. He doesn't say anything else. He just says, you're going to be condemned 40 days from now. That's it. That's his whole message. Now, knowing the Lord from reading the rest of Scripture and knowing his, his mercy and compassion, as we were singing about earlier, in, in my own life, I just have a feeling God wanted him to say more than that. But all he mentioned was the coming judgment. And notice what the king of Nineveh does. When, this is chapter 3, verse 6, if you're following in the biblical text. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he arose. Notice he did exactly what God told Jonah to do. He arose. He took off his royal robes. He covered himself with mourning sackcloth and sat down in the dust. This series in one verse, four verbs, four actions, rapid actions. The king of Nineveh is drastically more responsive 
in, in response to the word of the Lord, even a pretty pitiful sermon, than the prophet. So the king humbly admits his sinfulness. He calls for repentance in response to Yahweh's word. He tells everyone in the nation, you need to respond. You need to, uh, you need to turn to God. You need to uh, engage in fasting. He says everyone should mourn. Everyone should don sackcloth. It was a form of ritualistic mourning. Uh, and, and he responded with sadness and said, you need to respond to this word of God that, that's coming to you. There's calamity that's coming if you don't respond. Now, it's interesting that they, he tells the animals to fast, and he tells the animals to don sackcloth and mourn as well. So it seems like Jonah left out a few key pieces of the sermon. He tells them about the judgment, but he doesn't really tell them how to please God. He doesn't really tell them what they need to do to, to make sure that God is merciful to them, how they should go about responding to God's word. And so they kind of stumble. Again, it's kind of like the blind leading the blind. Jonah's in their midst, but they're really not doing what they need to do because Jonah's not telling them what to do. It's a prophet who isn't doing his job, and it's pagans who are really responsive to God and doing their best. Now, the text uh, notes that Nineveh is a very large city, and it was probably, at this time, around 120,000 people that lived in this city. It would take about three days to walk across this city on foot. But notice the details. Again, notice the text says Jonah took one day's journey into the city and delivered his message. You're not going to cover 120,000 people in one day. And notice the Bible mentions clearly it's a three days journey across. So it's in contrast to his approach. So he delivers a five word sermon and he only goes a third of the way in. And yet the message travels and it says, it doesn't say Jonah got it there, but it says when the message reached the king of Nineveh, here's how he responded. So the king didn't even hear the message from Jonah's lips. He heard it word of mouth and look how he still responded to the word of God. Now, the text, the, the scripture doesn't really tell us whether Jonah told the people that God was angry with them because of their wickedness. We know that's why he was angry, because we read it in, in, in Jonah 1, 1, or Jonah 1, 2, but we don't actually know if he told them why God was angry. And I mentioned earlier with the sailors on the ship, there was a lot of confusion. Gods were capricious in the ancient Near East. Of course, we know they're not real gods, but the gods they regarded as, as being deities were capricious. They, it was hard to know why they were upset. You would offer an offering to try to appease them. If there's a storm, you tried to call on all the gods you knew and hope someone would respond. Um, it was unclear, and Jonah's okay with just leaving them in the dark, just allowing them to stumble their way along. But notice when God shows up. God is nothing like the way Jonah is portraying them to them through his actions. Even though they're having the animals fast and they're donning the animals with sackcloth and they're doing all these things that aren't really correct, 
God just looks at their heart and notices they've humbled themselves before me. Sure, they're not responding perfectly, but I'm going to show mercy anyway because I see their hearts. And God says, you know what? I'm going to forestall the judgment. I'm going to postpone it. It's not coming. I'm going to give you time. And so I'm not going to destroy the city at the 40-day deadline after all. I'm going to show mercy. Isn't that wonderful? And you can just feel like the sigh of relief even here as we're thinking about the story. Everyone's like, wow, God shows mercy. Amazing. But that wasn't Jonah's response. Using strong language at the beginning of chapter 4, Jonah is extremely displeased when he finds out God showed mercy. What? How can we be, like the song earlier, we lift our hands and we celebrate God's mercy. And it's like, that's where my thoughts are at. But Jonah's like extremely angry. Why? And, and unfortunately, you know, sometimes the Bible doesn't answer all the questions we want it to. It's not clear why he's angry. So you kind of have to read between the lines. Some people have said, you know, there's different theories about why Jonah is so upset. Some people say, well, Assyria was a military enemy. And so Jonah was upset because of military grievances. But, but at this time, that, that's, that's sort of not what was going on historically. It's the wrong time period. Assyria wasn't really active in the West at this time. And so that's probably not a good explanation. Later on it would be, and, when, and later on, of course, Nineveh becomes Assyria's capital, but that's not going on now. So why was, God so, why was Jonah so angry? So some people have said, well, another reason why Jonah might have been angry is he was just confused theologically. He's just thinking, well, how can God respond to these clumsy attempts of these pagans that are trying to respond to him, and, and, and they're not doing it correctly. They're not offering sacrifices correctly. They're not praying correctly. So I'm just upset because God's letting them do something less than what he expects from me. But that's not true, because if, God, if he's that committed theologically, he would have told them the right way to do it. So that's not a good explanation. But I think a better explanation may be found, again, in a careful reading of Jonah's prayer when he was inside that great fish, where he notices, Jonah says, look at my own faithfulness to you, God. Oh, the irony. When he's at the low of low points in his path of disobedience, he, he has the gall to say, God, look how faithful I am to you. And then he contrasts his own faithfulness with the disloyalty of idol worshipers. He says, but look at those idol worshipers out there who don't turn to your love. But I, this is Jonah in the fish, remember, verse 8 of chapter 2. But I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed I will make good. I will say, salvation comes from the Lord. And you're like, eh, hypocritical much? I mean, it's like you're in a fish because you refuse and went in the opposite direction, and now you're celebrating your religiosity? It's not that the pagans turn away from God's love. It's that you, Jonah, didn't communicate his message to them. See, Jonah celebrated his own status as a Hebrew, as an Israelite, as a member of God's covenant people. And then he said, as a member of God's in crowd, I have this special status. But anyone who doesn't have the status, anyone who doesn't have the stamp Israelite, they have no value. Doesn't this sound familiar from Luke 18? When Jesus contrasts the humble sinner's prayer with that of the Pharisee who prayed, 
God, I thank you I'm not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even this tax collector who's praying over here. And we know who went home justified. See, Jonah seemed to think that he would and should always enjoy God's favor regardless of his own behavior. And as a corollary to that, he believed that non-Israelites would and should always enjoy God's disfavor. But God isn't like that. God doesn't pick a team of his favorites or friends and then, and then just allow special favors to the end crowd. No, he invites whosoever will to enter the church, to enter his people. And, and God expects righteousness and faithfulness and obedience and truth from insiders as well as outsiders. No one gets a free pass. Paul makes this point in Romans 2, and then later in Romans 14, 12, Paul says, each one of us will give a personal account to God. God doesn't operate based on labels. Just because you have the name prophet stamped on your jacket doesn't mean you're going to gain God's favor. And this is a lesson Jonah doesn't learn, but should have learned, and maybe learned after you know, his story ends for us, because we can't read the end of his story. But nowhere in the text does he learn this lesson. And God is operating and speaking to people and operating in the pagan king's heart and speaking through people all around Jonah. But Jonah himself, who should be hearing his voice, is reluctant. He's unprofitable. Jonah believed that God was merciful and loving by nature, but he thought the people of Nineveh should not benefit at all from God's mercy. Look at Jonah 4, 2 through 3. But to Jonah, when God showed mercy on Nineveh, to Jonah this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? This is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew you were a gracious and compassionate God slow to anger, abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. I knew it, God. I knew you were going to show mercy. That's why I didn't want to come. Notice Jonah is echoing the Lord's words to Moses after God had to create, or they had to make new tablets, remember, because of the people's mistakes, new tablets of stone with the commandments in Exodus 34, 6. It says, he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. And, and Jonah is quoting from this passage where God shows his mercy despite the people's mistakes, saying, God, why are you being merciful? It makes me angry the way you show mercy to these people. They don't deserve it. I'm glad God doesn't treat us like we deserve. And notice that earlier in the story, the king of Nineveh, earlier in the story, the king of Nineveh had said, who knows, God may, God might relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. And this is really where my title comes from. The king of Nineveh finishes Jonah's sermon for him. The pagan preaches while the prophet pouts. It fits a pattern in Jonah where the prophetic word of hope is always placed in the mouth of a pagan rather in the mouth of the prophet. I hope that I have more hope and compassion than the sinners I'm called to reach. Notice that Joel, Joel, who had compassion, 
as a prophet, a good example of a prophet. Also quoted from Exodus 34, 6, the same passage. For sake of time, I won't read it, but he quotes it in Joel 2, 13 through 14. And Joel says the question that the pagan king asks. He repeats it in Joel. Who knows? He may turn and relent. But then Joel doesn't finish the line. It's almost as if Joel expected that people would realize when they read his work, and maybe, who knows, maybe the hearers at the time recognized it too, recognized they're supposed to fill in in their minds the rest of the sermon from the pagan king. What gets repeated later in Joel? Is it the words of the prophet Jonah? No, it's the words of the pagan king whose heart responded to the word of God. Notice God uses who is available to him and who is willing to respond to him. God does not use people based on their title. Titles are great. Titles are wonderful. But at the end of the day, God's looking at our hearts. Jonah is so upset. And when God shows mercy, Jonah is angry. At the book's end, Jonah chapter 4, verse 11. I'm getting close to the end here. I, and God says to Jonah, Should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals? I take hope when I read the story that God loves all of his creation. When God named Abraham the father of of his special covenant people, he promised that his ultimate intention was to bless all the families of the earth, not just Israelites. But Jonah didn't get with the program. As God's plan continued to unfold, it became clear that God's plan had always been to provide salvation for the entire human race through the redemptive work of Calvary. And that's what we can celebrate here tonight in 2021 with the benefit of hindsight it's clear that Jonah did end up carrying God's message, or at least part of it. But what he failed to do was to carry God's heart. And so at the end of the day, when we, when we look at the book of Jonah, and I don't have time to cover everything, obviously, but just this sketch, when we look at the book of Jonah, the question is not, what was Jonah like? The question we should walk away from Jonah with is, what was God like? Because God did his thing despite Jonah. And instead of harshly judging Jonah, because it's so much fun to do, we have to realize and recognize our own temptation to begrudge God's compassion to other people around us. And this is where we can reach a message for our own lives and the story can sort of come off the page and minister to us. It's hard to pray for God to forgive people who have hurt us. I get that. But we have to confront the same question that the Lord asked Jonah in 4.4. Do you have a right to be angry? And ultimately, we have to say, no, I don't have a right to be angry. You can stand with me if you like as I draw it to a close. We have to be so careful about dehumanizing our fellow image bearers. Remember, we're all made in the image of God, not just Christians. Every human is made in the image of God. Every human is loved by God. I'm so saddened when I hear people make statements about other groups of humans, other groups of people, totally disregard their humanity. Those animals, those scumbags, whatever, whatever term, something that makes them less than human. 
That's not what we're called to do as Christians. Because when we get close to God's heart, we're never far from the cross. And we're never far from his passion for everyone, and I mean everyone, you, to be saved. The story of Jonah tonight, and this is what I hope we've got from this, the story of Jonah can challenge us to refocus our own eyes on what really matters. It's important to pay attention to the details. I think I mentioned that earlier. Notice sometime as you're reading the book of Jonah how the word, how the adjective great is used. It could mean great, big, large, whatever. How it's used throughout the book. God tries again and again to get Jonah to focus on the great city of Nineveh, the big city of Nineveh. It's in the message, both messages on your handout, and it's again at the end of the book. It's God's last word to Jonah in 4.11. Look at this great city, Jonah. God goes to great lengths to get Jonah to go to the great city. He sends a great wind. He sends a great windstorm. He sends a great fish to get the prophet's attention. But Jonah refuses to adopt God's point of view. Instead, Jonah is filled with great displeasure when God shows mercy. Jonah rejoices with great joy over a little plant that gives him shade. Notice Jonah's focused on his own emotions, his own comfort, rather than on the task that God has given him. And tonight, here's my challenge for you. Under the new covenant, each one of us is called to prophesy. Peter said it on the day's, day of Pentecost. He quoted Joel's prophecy. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Every one of us is called to preach the gospel. It's not like in Jonah's day where if, you're not, if you don't have the label prophet, you're off the hook. No, everyone is called to bear witness to what God has done in your life. I don't want to be an unprofitable prophet. I don't want God to have to seek out a pagan ship captain or a pagan king to preach in my place. So tonight, I invite you to pray with me, and I, I wonder if you would just join me in a prayer to ask God to refocus our attention on the great city he died to save. John 3:16 For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So pray with me this moment. Could you close your eyes and maybe just invite the Lord's presence as we pray? Join me in this prayer. Jesus, I don't want to be a reluctant and unprofitable servant. I want to carry your message faithfully to those around me. Thank you for loving us, God, while we were yet sinners. Help me to reflect your heart of compassion and care to the world. Right now, ask God to put someone in your mind's eye, someone that you know, someone on your job, someone on your street that you could speak to, that you could be the one to show God's heart of compassion to that person. Who is it that God is trying to refocus your attention on? Come on, reach out to him right now. God, I don't want to be an unprofitable servant, God. I want to speak your word to those around me, God. I want my heart to beat with your heart, God. I want to be what you want me to be, God. Thank you, Jesus. 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 Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Lift up your hands Oh
Dios.